there is lots of goalkeeper that have natural talent but when you really break it right down it's their fitness it's their it's their robustness can they withstand the strain of the impact after impact and through my experience and obviously through the GB program you see the girls you know at least 60 70 percent of the time they're in the gym they're they're working on those uh you know strengths and loading the muscle groups and and building from there and then the rest of it they are on the pitch that was aurora mears i'm curtis mansfield and you're listening to episode eight of hips and dips It's 2021, new year, new me, and in a world free from gyms, libraries, and devoid of almost all human interaction, it is perhaps not the time for reinvention. Therefore, you'll be glad to know I'm staying the same, the pod is back, and the guests have only just begun. Now, this podcast was pre-recorded in the run-up to Christmas, uh, but let's predict what might have happened between now and the new year when this podcast will be released. I'm guessing COVID infection rates have continued to rise. A Brexit deal has been reached, which probably leaves people more confused than ever. And some football has likely been postponed due to positive coronavirus tests. But this, luckily for you, is not a current affairs programme. And instead, we are talking sports and injuries with elite hockey goalkeeper Aurora Mears. Having spent much of the last decade playing in the National League Premier Division for clubs both indoors and outdoors, I feel she is very well positioned to talk about being an elite competitor in an amateur sport and thus the importance of managing priorities. Having started in net for Wimbledon, Canterbury, Holcombe and Reading hockey clubs, as well as being involved in the GB player pathway, she now divides her time between playing coaching and raising money for ex-armed forces personnel through Hockey for Heroes campaign. Once again, we're on Zoom, but nevertheless, we will try our best. So let's get Aurora on the pod. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. And you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Uh, so we're recording this actually in the lead up to Christmas Um, obviously I'm not going to release it until probably sometime between Christmas and New Year so uh, some of the topics might be a bit out of date I'm sure the guidelines nationally have changed several times in the last couple of weeks Um, (laughs) I've actually just watched the film Jack Frost which is always a childhood favourite of mine which was a put me in a good mood so, uh, cracking on with the actual interview, uh, so we always start these interviews by asking how you are, um, how you are and how you found your health's been affected throughout 2020, and we want to know from a sort of mental, physical and social perspective. So, as a very broad question, how's your health? Um, well, it's been up and down, actually, uh, beginning of lockdown, uh, actually, it was, it was in a really good, um, good state. Um, been trying to keep our fitness up over the first lockdown which was quite nice because I I was with my partner in lockdown so we're both quite active so it as well as like so the gyms and stuff were closing we were quite outdoorsy already 
Um, so we all do walks and runs and try and keep ourselves fit. We knew a couple of PTs locally uh, who did one-to-one -one stuff. So uh, on that first lockdown, health, fitness and the mental well-being felt really, really good. It was quite nice to actually have a bit of a break from hockey. quite a tense start of the season uh, with training and things like that. So it was kind of a nice break. Um, I think as more and more uh, lockdowns happened, it's been tougher in terms of trying to get back into a routine, um, trying to get that motivation to go back onto the pitch and training. And so I think it's been good and, it, and it's been a bit of a slippery slope in terms of the mental health part and probably my motivation to to go out there and train because I have so many things to think about of like who am I being in contact with who am I going you know who am I staying with you know if I'm going to meet my family as well uh, if I'm going to meet my family in the next few weeks or something just to say hi can, can I do that because they're high risk so yeah. it's been a bit like I just don't know what to do um, but it's trying to just find a way to try and adjust to what's going on and I think I've been quite lucky other people haven't as an athlete I've, I'm really lucky that I've got access to a hockey pitch while working at a school which is really really big at hockey so I've had a couple of staff that are, are big hockey players and play for the same club as me so I've been able to get my kit on so I've been able to do some to be doing some shooting, some fitness and running. So that's been really helpful last lockdown. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so from a, from a physical point of view, would you say you've maintained the same level? Would you, have you gained fitness, lost fitness? I think in the first lockdown, I, I think I, I gained because within that first three months, I was getting myself prepared to go back onto the pitch. Uh, not obviously realizing that there's going to be such fluctuations of you know inconsistency of games and matches not happening, so I felt like right, what can I do that's different? Instead of not having the uh, the gym, I was like, well, I had some group PT stuff to do to improve my explosiveness and speed and that kind of endurance. So, I was, which I felt got better. I went on for a longer run. So I was you know focusing on different elements. Um, but as, as I went along and the inconsistency of where I was and coaching and my job and, and location, it was, it got harder and harder. So I'd say it got, it was good at the beginning, kind of fell down a little bit and then try to pick it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at the point I got to a point there, I was like, okay, I feel strong enough, stronger but I'd lack the hockey pitch fitness. So stuff with my kit on, you know, the reactive stuff, the movement, the shot stopping, the diving, those things that I can't practice on a field. So that's, I guess that's where yeah. I was. I mean, obviously it's about maintaining sports specific yeah. fitness, which is um, something which a lot of people struggled with the concept of. So for me, yeah. Sticking that first lockdown, I really got back into running again. Um, yeah. I think I went a bit over the top. I think I got to the point where I was running nearly 100 miles a week. Um, yeah. 
and when I came back to hockey, everyone who sort of followed my running sort of frenzy, uh, mm. I think were expecting me to be like this new unbelievable level of fitness. Um, and I might have been in terms of running at a consistent pace for a long period of time. But of course, I hadn't been able to work on uh, strength so much. I hadn't worked on change of direction. I hadn't worked on um, yeah. change of speed. So all these things which are important for sport, and in this case, hockey, uh, aren't really worked on by just running half marathons twice a week. No. And, <laughs> so it's about, and then I think that's something to be interesting in other sports, particularly on like rugby. So many people maintain their fitness levels, but they lost muscle mass. They lost um, strength in their joints. And yeah. then that's obviously going to have a negative impact when it comes to injuries and getting back into playing again if you haven't had that sport-specific fitness. Yeah, and I think... I know more recently hearing some of the top athletes within the GB programme with this league uh, starting again, um, you know, there was conversations whether this was a good idea because of people weren't at the fitness level that they were before. um, Was it a good idea to make players go back onto the pitch and play, finish the league before Christmas in such a short period of time where, you know, when we have a pre-season, it's three, four months uh, where you can increase the load and that intensity and then having to be away from the hockey pitch for three weeks and then expect it to be that, that week that week to go straight onto the pitch and play an hour game. It's, you know, it's a bit asking questions going, is this a good idea? How many injuries are we going to see? And unfortunately, I've, you know, with lots of friends being hockey players, I have already heard, you know, they went back training injury straight away. And it's like, you know, what could we have done before? Was it a good idea? You know, there's so many questions. Well, yeah, I mean, and top top hockey clubs haven't got the yeah. finances that uh, football or rugby clubs have. Exactly. So you, you haven't yeah. got regular um, medical testing. You haven't got no. uh, like GPS monitoring and so on. So it's much harder to manage workload um, yeah. in those sort of shorts and pre-season. So, yeah, I mean it's inevitable you're going to have higher injury rates. It's, yeah, uh, it's harder yeah. to maintain. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm quite interested, you briefly touched on this earlier, but to consider you as an elite athlete um, and obviously playing in the top hockey league in the, in the country, you obviously were given slightly different rules to uh, obviously completely amateur. Um, or well, Amateur is a bad term to use in hockey because obviously the sport is amateur. But... Um, this is say uh, grassroots or lower level hockey teams, uh, but obviously you weren't given the same allowances that football and rugby were, so you didn't get to go back quite as early. You didn't have obviously the finances for the testing and so on. But yeah. what, how how have you found perhaps hockey this year has differed for you on the elite side of things compared to say some of your friends who are maybe playing second team or third team at the club? Um, I think we've had a quite a support network within the club like where I play for Wimbledon it's been good I guess it's been different from other uh, club members I know who play a lower league is that we have so we've been able to give like programs and stuff for us to work on uh, being able to access pitches uh, as well I think that's the difference uh, at a higher level in the clubs that you played again it depends the access to the pitch has really helped if you've been local so you've been able to go onto the pitch train with the people 
and uh, small groups uh, where a lot of my teammates or friends, sorry, uh, haven't been able to because they don't have their own pitches clubs. They have either schools which have closed down or they've had to travel obviously to their nearest pitch. So guess the difference is it's accessibility to the pitch, which has been local and open for us to do. Um, and it's trying to cater for each individual going, right, are you getting enough? What can we do more? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, okay, of course. Um, okay, so, so I mentioned you're an elite athlete and you get that term because you play in the English uh, Hockey Premier League and you have done so yeah. now for many years. Uh, but you're far from being a one-team woman. So I'm quite interested as to, uh, obviously, why the changes of clubs? Have you found different approaches at different clubs? Um, um, I think it's opportunities, uh, really, for me. Uh, as I started my goalkeeping career at Canterbury, it was my hometown. So it was my local, where my local school was, where I lived. And it had an amazing facility and it was a great starting point for me. And I think as a goalkeeper, because there's only one position um, and there's other players coming in, filtering through. And like you say, within the higher, you know, clubs, you've got contracts or players, up-and-coming players, GB players, international. So you've got that mix coming in. And as, as a developing player myself, it was quite hard. So I had to look for opportunities where I could play uh, a higher level. And for me, when I play, play National League and Premier League, it was playing a Holcomb. So I, I left because, you know, it was a personal, uh, you know, preference for me, where it can help me push me further where are my ambitions. You know, I wanted to play a high standard international or get as far as I can. So in order for me to do that, I had to feel, you know, kind of selfish look at it uh, and move on. And as that happens, you also, you know, the experience is amazing. And it is, you get to meet great coaches, great players, international players, and you, you learn a lot. You know, I was very fortunate to play alongside Maddie Hinch, uh, when I moved to Holcomb, I didn't expect to get as many games as I used to, I did, but I got pretty much the whole season. Uh, Ken, for her, it was an injury that happened at the Europeans, so she was out. Uh, but I had a, a fantastic, you know, goalkeeper and a coach that helped me, and I learned so much. And then, you know, things like opportunities like jobs and careers, because obviously hockey isn't a paid job, uh, not no, not a not a high paying job. Um, so another, another opportunity for me was that I wanted to go into teaching and stuff like that. And Reading were looking for a goalkeeper. So I moved to Reading. So it, it kind of just flows, it, you know, opportunity after opportunity comes along, you meet new people, things change. Another goalkeeper comes in, unfortunately, because it's such a competitive position. It's, you have to think quite selfishly about it. It's like, what do you want? from this, um, do I want to be second? Do I want to be on the bench? Do I want to play seconds? No, I don't. If I want a bit better, I'm going to have to go, no, uh, this isn't, there's another club that are looking for a keeper. They're trying to develop, right, fantastic. Another opportunity. 
Um, and that's when Wimbledon came across for me. They wanted to, they've had such amazing goalkeepers throughout their, you know, kind of promotion stages to try and get to Prem. Uh, and I was, you know, fortunate to be part of the team that got us uh, promoted to Premier League this season and has been amazing and still is. Um, so, yeah, and I'm, it's not to say that I won't move again, because, again, it's a very competitive position um, and I'm not getting younger. <laughs> so I, I, I want to get the best I can and as far as I can, while I can. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you're um, obviously involved in teaching and coaching yeah, uh, and of that some to some extent dictates where you're going to play. Uh, have you ever had a decision to make where it's hockey versus teaching? So you're thinking, I could go. This is a better job, but perhaps worse hockey, or um, this is the much better hockey team, but the job's not as good, or the money's not as good as the job. And is that quite often yeah. a dilemma for you? I think for 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 me, it's you know location in terms of where the hockey is for me is a, is a massive thing but also try and get a job hence reading for me at that time so I had a really good opportunity to earn good money but also to uh, progress my teaching experience as well as playing alongside with hockey hockey for me though like when I do look for jobs I, <laughs> I don't know if it's the right way or wrong but I do look at the local clubs, hockey clubs, for me, I think it's really, really important. If I, uh, this comes, I guess, into that mental well-being and that health is that I want to be able to be, uh, you know, after working to go and train somewhere that's takes my mind off work, high intensity, really good level. So it, it varies generally, but it has been tough in terms of, you know. M- been given opportunities for jobs and having to turn them down uh, over coaching and playing, uh, whether it's abroad or here. So yeah, it's been, yeah, yeah. No, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that, obviously, I think people forget that even at the highest level of hockey, even international level, um, yeah. it's either not a career or it's barely a career. So. Yeah, it's it's always that. I think when you see when you see footballers or, or rugby players or quite yeah. a lot of various elite sportsmen and women, it's much more of a you know you sacrifice all for the sport. So it's very easy to do that mm-hmm. when you're getting paid a reasonable amount. So you know you follow. Yeah. You go to the best team and you go. Oh, I want to. I want to play for this hockey. Uh, sorry, this football club because it's going to get me a chance to play European football or it's my home club or whatever. But for you, you've got to make a decision based on. Uh, money and uh, yeah. opportunities and then also the well-being of your friends and family and it's a much yeah. more complicated decision I think when it comes to a sport it where is. you're semi-pro than a professional sport yeah definitely no I, I agree it, it has been a bit like a roller coaster of like what to do where to go location wise and things like that but like you say it's it's a little bit harder say if you know you're going to get paid good money then it's a little bit easier, but it's so competitive at the moment. It's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So on a lighter note, uh, I said, we've had a long, you've had a long career in hockey. 
um, at multiple yeah. sort of big, big net in terms of hockey clubs, big names. Uh, what have been those highlights for you looking back on that that time? Oh, so many. I think there's a lot. The highlights for me is meeting the players and again gaining the experiences that I have, whether it is from any of the goalkeepers that I'm competing with or uh, I'm also coaching within the club. I think the best thing is, is when I go to a club, I want to make the most of um, the most of it, whether it's coaching the young athletes that are trying to come up and progress or whether it's obviously trying to, my best to play. I think one of the biggest highlights for me in my playing career like, is... I think very recently was Wimbledon indoor season. The last few years has been uh, really, really good. I absolutely love indoor and I think it's uh, probably my strongest point um, throughout my playing career. And we managed to get three promotions in a row without being defeated any games. And... And I think the achievement with the hard work and the determination from the club and the players um, has was just incredible and just really like proud moment to be promoted to Premier League. Obviously, there's a bit of a hiccup this season and with no indoor, so that was tough to handle after that hard work. But we know we've got there and when indoor does come back, then we are there. So, yeah, no, yeah, indoor. Um, for anyone who's listening to this podcast who hasn't heard about hockey or <laughs> seen hockey, um, and certainly not seen indoor hockey, I mean, you can't compare the two sports, outdoor and indoor. So, yeah, apart from fact you're holding a hockey stick and hitting a hockey ball and so on, there's hockey goals, but the sports are so different the way they're played. And for anyone in the hierarchy of England hockey and wants to know how to sell hockey in general and make more money out of it and make it more of a commercial enterprise you've got to sell the indoor game because the indoor game is yeah. incredible as a, as a spectator any sport where you can go from making a save at one end of the pitch to a shot at the other end of the pitch in under what two seconds is such an amazing sport as a spectator the, the drama the the uh, you can score two goals in about four or five seconds if you're good enough it's unbelievable how end-to-end it can be um and you obviously it's in an indoor venue the noise is amazing they, they played the um what they call it the super is the super sixes i think they call it the indoor yeah super sixes yeah championships um have you have you made it to that stage yet is that so <laughs> i have played in the super sixes uh previous uh clubs canterbury um unfortunately the other clubs have been promoted into the prem uh, Reading, I did play in the Super Sixes, but unfortunately we got relegated with a few players that were quite missing. But I still loved it, <laughs> so yeah, I didn't like, see the results didn't matter really. It's just the experience. But I have played in the Super Sixes, yes. Yeah, that, that is so that indoor environment and just uh, so yeah, you play at Wembley and you have um, five, ten thousand, whatever it's probably just the noise and yeah, look it up. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> But a career, so a career with uh, that many top clubs and that many big games, it's going to take its toll on your body. Uh, so I'm sure there's been some injuries and adversity across that time. Uh, give me some examples of injuries you've had and how you've had to overcome them. Um, I think there's been a few, but not major ones, um, apart from one. 
I think the first start of my injuries after a long career was indoor actually because it's just so intense um was I just had a small quad tear and I think as you're saying at the beginning is like or saying it's that goalkeepers can probably uh, withstand that injury for a little bit longer so it didn't take me out at all very long it was back a week or so um but the worst injury was my MCL, so um, that that was that was really really tough. And the first ever experience of being out uh, of the game for a long time, and that was tough. But yeah, so coping. But previously, I it was very new to me and uh, how to mentally prepare for it, um, get my head over it, having knowing that I was going to be out playing any sports for eight weeks was just um, was a bit of a shock <laughs> at first. Um, but I, I had an amazing support team. I had a rehab team at when I was at Reading, this was uh, where we had one physios who were part of our first ladies squad. Um, and got constant treatment, uh, programming, and a, a proper proper outlet of what I had to do each day for the amount of time and, and stuff like that. I was in a cast, so I couldn't move, I couldn't bend my knee. So I had to do strength-based stuff, it all specific. So it was tough because I was doing all this work and you sometimes don't see an end goal until you know the big, big changes happen. Um, but for me, it was a learning curve of, uh, as a coach as well, to kind of see how to manage these, how you overcome these little hurdles. So if I get young athletes or other people within the same, I can help them kind of reassure them and that I've been in their place, I've been and done it and trying to see what we can do to help. Um, so yeah <laughs> yeah tough, no tough. I uh, yeah I spoke to um Joni in episode uh episode three it was um so he's a physiotherapist and we we mentioned managing expectations with injuries mm-hmm. and how important it is that so as you knew it would be eight weeks layoff um as opposed to being told oh yeah you're probably back in like three or four weeks and then next thing it's six weeks then it's eight weeks and I mean, is that that's the real killer? It's that kind of hope of thinking mm. I'll be back soon, and it's only going to be a short period. If you know it's going to be a long period, you can adjust much better, I think, to, to that layoff. I think at first I didn't know it was going to be that long. Uh, oh, I thought okay. it would be three, four weeks, and then after initial assessment, uh, so again an MRI. So I got a private MRI. Um, it showed the grade of the tear like it was only two but it was enough to take me out for for a longer period of time so that's that was the shock um you know even though eight weeks was like that was my end goal there was one or two weeks after that where I wasn't confident to get back on the pitch it really knocked it so though I was fit enough after eight weeks and probably fitter than I was originally I had a lot more strength and stability in around my knee it was getting back on the pitch was the tough part um Mm. 
put you know put it under through the stresses of the lunging and twisting which is what you know it didn't like that that's what took I think longer um to get back um so I think what they after getting over that hurdle it was a massive massive hurdle getting back and playing um I was very fortunate that indoor hockey happened so they just threw me straight in they knew I was I was I was in and around a really good team, strapped my knee up about three, four layers throughout the whole day. And that really increased my confidence because first few days or first weekend, I was like, yeah, I've gone through movements and ranges of movements that I probably would have not done prior to that. And I felt good. So that was really, really good. Yeah, well, I suppose for you as well, I mean, you, you spoke about uh, competition earlier and being yeah. in a position where there's only one of you um mm. and that must be really hard when you had that eight week layoff to to see someone else in your position and knowing full yeah. well you know if you if they play better than you and you know say uh what club were you at, at the time i was at reading at reading to so say say reading keep eight clean sheets and the top of the league or whatever then you know yeah. your position could be gone it could be your your position in the team, your your job is all is all over. So to be able to have to sit there so helplessly. So if you're a midfielder, say, you know, hopefully you'll be on that bench next week. You might get half a game. You might integrate yourself back in. You'll be fine. But yeah. to be in a one one position uh, where you can't you can't have half a game or a few minutes, it's it's you're in or you're out. It must be really really tough. Yeah, it is tough, especially when they're younger as well. <laughs> so I'm not getting any younger. Um, it, it is really, really tough, but I have to look at it at, at their perspective. So it's an opportunity for them, you know, at a selfish look at it, really kind of go, right, I, I know I need to, when I get back on the pitch, that I need to be strong enough and still prove my point, um, regardless of my experience. And yes, you want them to do really well, which is great. But it's also, like you said, it's quite tough on it. Keeping clean sheet, performing really well. But I think to keep that relationship uh, really strong between the keepers within the same club or same level is to just to help each other and not kind of build friction within that. So I, I, it is, it's a tough one, really, because... I was pretty lucky in my position that the keeper was younger, so she wasn't as experienced. So for me, it became a bit of a coaching mentoring role. Um, but I know that, say, if it was, you know, if I had an international, current international keeper, which I do at the moment, fine for the spot, then that's that was that's tough. Uh, uh, so, which I've been lucky that I'm not injured through that process. So then getting back into the squad and stuff would have been even harder. Yeah, it's funny actually. When you watch um, international football, for example, and um, someone wins a trophy, let's just say it's the World Cup and England win a penalty shootout for once, yeah. and all the players run on the pitch and everyone's celebrating and they're in a big pile up in the corner, it's always like the sub goalkeepers you seem to get to the pile up first. Did everybody understand? So you'd have the second and third choice goalkeeper celebrating with the guy who's just made the save or whatever. Yeah. I always, I feel like part of me would be going like, oh, damn it, sorry, because the fact they've won that game means you're done. You're back on the bench. If 
part of me must be thinking, oh, if he may, if he doesn't save this, then I've got a chance. <laughs> I can back in. But obviously, that's all part of being a good team player, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I so, said uh, you you mentioned uh, very briefly earlier, but as a goalkeeper, you can technically play on with certain injuries, uh, much more than you could do, say, as a midfielder. So let's just take, as you mentioned, uh, uh, was it a quad strain? Um, or quad tear, like as a midfielder, you could be out for a long period of time with that because you can't obviously run to your full uh, extent. But as a goalkeeper, you know, if you've got one leg weak on the other, you can do your job, maybe not 100%, but you can probably pay it like, you know, 60, 70%, which, um, and it said it sounds a bit like you're describing uh, a Monty Python sketch with like with the Dark Knight, but the idea of having just, oh, it's only a flesh wound I can play on. It's only a strip. <laughs> It's only a strained knee. It's only a strained ankle. Uh, obviously, it must be quite hard because I feel like you're taking that decision more often than not to step away because you're the one who knows your quad's not fully fully, um, fully operational. And by playing on, you're not helping it at all. But you could play on, which is very different because, say, as a midfielder, you couldn't play on. You can't, you can't walk. As a goalkeeper, you could, you could get by, but... At, detriment yourself so have you ever had those scenarios where you've got to take yourself out of the game or uh, yourself out of training and do the best for you yeah I, I have well firstly when I was younger um, when I had proper quad strain like a big quad strain I had to kind of I was in such agony I had to step off and the replacement goalkeeper when we were on tour had to step in so that was that was tough but um most recently, I've had like a couple of ankle strains and I think you get to an, um, an experience in an age where you go, you know what your body's been through, whether it can take it or not. So when you go, actually, I've done enough, I can still do stuff, but this pain is not going to get any better if I carry on. I need to just take a few days out or a week uh, or the intensity out of the training and step off, the, you know. Um, so it's just about being aware of your body and listening to it. And I think as you grow older, become a little bit wiser about that. When you're younger, you just want to plough through. You, you want to be, you don't want to let the team down. You still want to be in the limelight and, and don't want to give up. And I think that's where we sometimes get a few issues of later injuries because it's a reoccurred injury or pre-existing um from something that they've gone you know what it'll be fine um and i've learned the hard way <laughs> with my mcl is that i thought it was fine and then it went it got worse and that's when the tear happened so that for me was the biggest learning curve it's like if i feel like there's a niggle then you stop you get it looked at get a physio look at it they see it or they go yep yeah, it's fine just strap it up you can still play. Yes, you have had a strain, but you're okay. And I think that's what you say when you're goalkeeping, it's a little bit different than an outfielder because you're putting your muscles in different kind of strains than you would with goalkeeping. Um, I'm not saying that one is different to the other, is that you'd have to look after yourself in certain, differently as a goalkeeper than you would as an outfielder because um, the injuries are slightly different. Yeah, I think that's something you develop. You're right. You develop that um, decision-making to 
get it looked at by an expert as soon as possible and perhaps the foresight to think it's better to maybe waste some time waste some money getting it looked at sooner rather than potentially having a massive problem in the future um i had an example of that this week actually i played a game last saturday uh got hit by a hockey ball on the foot like pretty well hit shot a short corner um at the time I played on, didn't think much of it, but the next day I could barely put any weight through it. So straight away, the next morning, I went down to a had an x-ray, turned out it was all fine. But if you compare that to, say, 10 years ago, I uh, fractured my wrist. Um, I actually carried on as usual for about, I think, four or five days with a fractured wrist before I finally went, right, it's time to go and get it looked at. Obviously, I'd, I'd played on in that time. I'd done other things in that time. Um, only probably to the long-term detriment. If I could have had that scan straight away, I'm sure I would have, um, I'm not saying it would have unfractured my wrist. I still would have had the, the break, but uh, I think I probably would have benefited myself and maybe had a shorter recovery if I could have just got in there earlier. Yeah, I think that, that you say, you know, being playing at an elite level, especially within the clubs, you're, if you have a team and you have physios within them and that's and it's accessible then it's great but if you're a lower le- level and you don't have that then you're only going by your own judgment or by oh when I can get an appointment which can be one or two weeks down the line and you don't know at that time what the extent of the damage so you carry on um, but if you've got that instant diagnosis you go someone on the pitch as soon as you've done it you go oh yeah no take week off then you know that you have that recovery and rehab already from the set go and you don't have that say all the time yeah it's um oh god this is a rabbit hole we're going to go down which is going to take us on a massive tangent but uh, <laughs> uh it's, it's, it's very interesting though because i had um what was i watching the other day it was to do with I don't, know if you, I don't know if you heard in the news, um, there's a bunch of rugby players who are suing uh, the RFU, so the governing body, um, uh, yes. for, for brain damage and early mm. onset dementia and so on. It's a really interesting case. Um, and obviously it all boils down to whether the RFU knew the dangers, didn't tell the players and stuff like that. But one of the things that's come out of it is they've said, you know, players uh, obviously should know when to come off, when to... Uh, and they had to take breaks when they've had concussions. But, and I think it was, I think it might have been Dawson, some ex rugby player anyway, has said basically you shouldn't put any emphasis on the players because players are pretty stupid and want to, and want to play on. So you really need someone, um, said, whether that be a physio or a doctor or someone to physically almost pull them off the pitch. Don't, don't trust players to go, oh, yeah, I feel a bit dizzy. I need yeah. to go off and have a break or my leg hurts a bit. Because players will do whatever they can to to think uh, to to play on to get around it. Um, I mean, there's a bit there's a big spate of players um, faking head injury assessments so they can get around it, trying to memorize the tests so they can play on. Well, because of course you want to play on, and if if you haven't got someone to pull you off the pitch, then obviously players do make mistakes, and that is the beauty of a professional sport and high level sport because you can be pulled off the pitch but so that amateur level players are going to play on they're going to have more injuries and, that, and that's inevitable 
But anyway, yeah. that is a complete, that's enough of that. Yeah. That's going to say, it's a very that, broad we'll, topic. <laughs> we will save that for another another time. Anyway, so <laughs> I've divided this interview in my head into three sections. And the first of which is your playing career, which we've discussed uh, now. And the second part is obviously what runs alongside your playing career nowadays, which is your coaching uh, career. Uh, and I said, I had a little look into your, your CV and after a series of coaching roles, you decided to start your own coaching school called the Goalie Guide. Um, and from the social media, I can see there's places quite a lot of emphasis actually on strength and conditioning, as opposed to uh, purely being sort of skill-based and game management-based and so on. Is this something you identified was lacking in the sport and in particularly in goalkeepers? Uh, yes, yeah, it was. Um, I originally started the goalie guide with a friend of mine, Henry. So we both um, really keen goalkeepers and coach and both coaches as well so we've experienced both together about 15 to 20 years worth of experience so we've seen a lot um, of clubs and young athletes where we thought right this is something that is definitely lacking what can we do and it started initially over lockdown go right we're off the pitch we've got no gym and access so we've only got access to our homes and we've only got access to that like a park so what could we do and um to help that out so originally we wanted to get content of things and exercises that they can do that's fun but with the obviously a twist of it snc part the strength and conditioning so as that progressed and more coaching that we did and uh, and more research that we did we went well we, we make we wanted to make sure that our coaching sessions incorporated elements of snc in every session uh, younger or older so the, the reason for this came from a, a personal experience um as at a late bloomer in my career playing uh for, you know the gb development squad 2016 2018 prior to that i'd had very little knowledge or experience of actually having any support and snc throughout my playing career unless you were already at that elite level under 16s and beyond and i was like well you know i was 24 20 you know 20 odd and as I, you know, I was lucky that I was a gym freak and I loved my PT stuff and really into that kind of stuff and researching the benefits of it and trying to keep on top of my fitness. But not everyone has the same opportunities. So we were like, well, let's set, uh, make this more consistent. So we decided to kind of break down of, what goalkeeping is and how it, it's different to just general coaching and um, we learn a long way you know the implications of uh, of injuries that have happened uh, at a younger age and has uh, prohibited further development in certain players careers and which was quite disheartening to hear from our research and um so we decided to well why do 
you know, let this happen, carry on, um, do something about it. Um, so we decided to kind of look at movements that uh, are relevant to goalkeeping. So looking at that uh, functional basic movements that are incorporated like lunges and squats and those kind of things and core stability and try to help strengthen those or focus on those in order to help the performance on the pitch mm. so yeah really that's a yeah I mean, I mean i mean i suppose no just on top of my head now i'm thinking from a from like a testing point of view things like vertical jump would be key for like a goalkeeper to have that springiness um and i suppose yeah when you actually think about it it's quite a lot of it's actually much less fitness like old-fashioned cardiovascular fitness for a goalkeeper yeah a lot more uh, like body mobility and body control so for example you make a save you're lying on your back you've got to get up and get to the other side of the goal to make another save in you yeah. know one second two seconds so it's that like fast twitch uh driving up off your using your arms yeah. and chest quick up save down and it's, it's almost if you actually think about like a goalkeeper in a match it's almost like a like a circuit session yeah like pre press up squat uh jumping lunge squat press up it's almost like that isn't it really so um yeah yeah it's that repetitive movement so you constantly going through the same motions you know goalkeeping you know has um different fundamental skills such as balance which is most important but in order to have balance you have to have certain levels of strength and stability within that your core and your your glutes and your quads and your hamstrings and you know if you don't have that that's then going to obviously hinder your progression so we kind of try and break down uh, our exercises to focus on those muscles and those muscle groups you know you're diving all the time so you're going to have to have that shoulder stability um, you're driving onto your hips so you're going to have that robustness to, to kind of retain that impact you know over and over again you're jumping again you're going to have to have that elasticity, elasticity in your muscles again okay, the fast twitch fiber muscles there so you have to train them over and again but obviously still focusing on the technical aspect of it and how each movement that we go through, like say smother or a dive or a lunge or a kick, we need to break that down in order for us to optimize that movement. But in order for you to get the best um, kick, you're gonna have to have stability and power and drive. So you have to have these things, you know, don't just happen as it is. There is lots of goalkeepers that have natural talent but when you really break it right down, it's their fitness, it's their, it's their robustness. Can they withstand the strain of the impact after impact? And through my experience and obviously through the GB programme, you see the girls, you know, at least 60, 70% of the time they're in the gym. They're, they're working on those, uh, you know, strengths and loading the muscle groups and, and building from there and then the rest of it they are on the pitch um but you know training is about overload and mm. if you're not going to get that overload and that 
support, then how are you going to improve? How are you going to then, you know, prevent injuries? Because, oh, well, I haven't, well, my ankles are quite, quite susceptible for rolling all the time. It's weakness. And I have since for ages. It's, well, why is no one, have you done these exercises? No, I didn't know. So well, it's simple. Uh, so that's just generally what we want to do. It's like, right, it's fun, but it's also educational and really, really beneficial for them to develop as goalkeepers. Yeah. Is, um, is power to weight ratio important as a goalkeeper? Because most goalkeepers I, I know personally, um, I don't know many big goalkeepers. I mean, in the old days, particularly amateur level, you'd see like, oh, you put the fat guy in goal or whatever. Yes. Um, but when it comes to the elite goalkeepers, a lot of them are, uh, a lot of them probably fit the mould of most hockey players or so fairly, fairly uh, slim, low body fat percentage, very lean muscle, um, probably more on the slim, skinnier side, the muscular side of anything. Uh, is, is that important or do you actually want to have that um, bit of bulk, bit of strength for collisions as a goalkeeper? Um, I think, you know, to, to be honest, I, I think the, in terms of the actual body mass and your physique and stuff, doesn't. I think it's irrelevant in, in such a way for goalkeepers. Yes, when I was playing, it was the big keepers, okay, which probably wasn't ideal at the time, but the game has changed so much over time. And it's become faster, quick, you know, quicker, more dynamic. So you, yes, the physique and the the muscle makeup on your, your body is probably going to have to be a little bit different than you would say that someone has a bigger mass. Um, but not to say that they can't play. But if they want to play a higher level, then yeah, you probably want to be slightly smaller in your physique and your muscle mass. I think at the time it depends on your makeup like I would say for me I'm probably my muscle mass is probably more than generally goalkeepers but that's my genetic makeup and the way I train and do things than with another keeper um I tend to be more explosive in terms of my movements so you know which it requires a lot more kind of power and weights and stuff like that and there's some keepers that are more reactive and things like that, which comes to say like maybe the taller keepers are, which the boys are, tend to be a lot leaner and taller, but might not be as explosive. Mm. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think as the game has changed and expectations of what size or what the expected size of a keeper, it, it it's a, again, it's a really broad topic because I've known lots of goalkeepers who've been told they're too small to play at a high international level, but are phenomenal keepers. And I've seen tall goalkeepers, I'm like, oh, okay, you're good at the reach and stuff, but you, you, your quickness to get go down and up isn't as good. So it, it depends, really. Um, yeah, I mean... Um... I was actually a goalkeeper who was told that I was a bit on the small side to play high level when I was younger. Um, but it's interesting because when you're when you're playing against a goalkeeper who's really tall, um, you always say the stereotypes, put it bottom corner, 
he won't be able to get down to them. He won't be able to save bottom corner, stick a bottom corner. If you're playing against a small goalkeeper, you always say, oh, you know, stick it in the roof. Um, he won't be able to get up there, all these sort of things. So, of course, it does go both ways. The smaller the goalkeeper, the better <laughs> they are going to be getting to the floor. It makes, it makes perfect sense. Um, okay, so moving on, uh, I think hockey is quite a rare example of a sport where there isn't a significant gender gap. Um, say you compare it to football, rugby, uh, obviously netball in the opposite way, basketball, yeah. loads of sports have quite a big difference between male and female in terms of wages, in terms of crowds, in terms of TV coverage, sponsorship. Um, there's always a tendency to quite a big disparity. When it comes to hockey, um, it's very even. It might tilt ever so slightly in favour of uh, the female game, international level particularly with the success at the last olympics for the gb women but overall i'd say it's pretty even but when it comes to coaching and specifically in terms of fitness and strength and conditioning do you find there is a disparity because this is my opinion from the outside um i found there's actually very little strength and conditioning or very little emphasis placed on strength and conditioning in the hockey progression system uh, but generally young boys um, might get their strength and conditioning from another source. So most schools and clubs that sort of have good hockey sections also have rugby clubs or rugby schools. So players might develop their knowledge of the gym from the strength and conditioning they get from rugby and then take that into hockey with them. Uh, whereas the girls' side generally don't have as many sports which have great SNC, so therefore it makes sense. If they're not getting it from hockey themselves, where are they getting it from? So I do find, from my point of view, there is a big difference in the way sort of men and women approach the game at my level. But when it comes to more elite level, do you think there is a disparity there? Or um, I think it's, it's, it's difficult, really, because genetically the boys and girls are very different in terms of their, uh, their makeup so boys always tend to be stronger and more physically physically robust than, than women are and I think that uh, you said there is however disparity probably between boys and girls at school or coaching that they have um, their sports like boys are more high impact uh, than I say with women. So the emphasis on the SNC and that strength-based stuff um, and the SNC is going to be very different to women's, which is less impact, more running, more doing, and also the psychology of uh, girls in sport and women than boys is different because mm. you've got factors such as, you know, um, outside world of the media and body image and things like that you know not long ago girls and women's sports weren't really seen essencing gym work as really a bit of a trend like wasn't really seen as a trend but now you do you see a lot of crossfitters and things like that and muscle mass has become a little bit more um you know acceptable uh, and i think there's also that still wariness within say school is what are the girls perception of doing that kind of stuff and how they feel and there's that kind of bit of imbalance where the boys are happy they want to be look cool they want it bigger and they want to be stronger like I say it's that kind of 
um, you know, competitive state where girls are like, oh, I can't lift that. That's not cool. It's not right. And actually, having seen, um, you know, where SNC is applied within school, where I work at, it's, it's really it's really good to see a lot of girls being involved and have that support. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it so, makes sense yeah. say if you're, if you're taught how to use equipment and how to exercise in the gym as part of the yeah. sport, then you learn or you, you engage in it properly. Whereas if you're just shown the gym and told, you know, at 14, oh, it's time you start doing SSC, off you go. Of course, it makes sense that you're not going to learn anything. Like I remember no. on the hockey side of things, you're getting very little. But in, in rugby, I remember, I think we must have been probably like 15, getting towards um, sort of senior rugby. And we had a whole session where the sports hall had various barbells laid out and we were doing lightweight lunges, lightweight squats, clean and jerk, um, uh, uh, snatch etc like basic uh, body movements with weights and we were taught what each one does and why you do it and how you do it so that's that's a proper introduction to strength and conditioning not oh uh, by the way you should join a local gym and use it yeah you have to be obviously you have to be integrated and and that's what rugby gave you, you know because they're very different sports but rugby had that very clearly laid out um this is a big part of the sport this is how you do it this is why you do it Whereas hockey, I felt there was a little bit more of, oh yeah, by the way, guys, at the end of training, you should be fit and you should be strong. Uh, go ahead and go forth and find out. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. I think probably because they haven't got the facility and again, the, the finance or the, like you say, top elite sports will have. So I think that's, that's probably one thing is if you don't have the facilities or you have the right staff to do that within then you can't do it. I'm trying to think, really. Well, there's, I mean, there's not really, it's not really an answer. And it's not really for you to, yeah, like, like do it by yourself. It's so I mean, broad. I mean, it's, it's just about introducing introducing stuff. And uh, so I remember, like I, I think, another another example is like swimming, where we started having, uh, they called it land training. So you had your water training, your land training. And we'd have land training, I think, twice a week. Uh, so we were swimming five times a week, yeah. up to seven times a week. We had land training twice a week as well. So we were just taught about sort of basic calisthenics and bodyweight exercises and how that impacts on the swimming. So it just became part of the process that you, you gain strength outside of the pool. Just swimming all the time wasn't enough. In the same way, just playing hockey all the time is not enough. You've got to develop your physique and your strength and your... Uh, endurance off the pitch and that's that's I think the real key message and that's particularly I said lacking I found with the female side over the male side it's just just playing hockey all the time isn't necessarily how you become a great hockey player there's other parts to it yeah and I think that comes back to also me speaking about that kind of um, psychology part of how women respond to certain things like that than men do. And I think it's something that is still uh, looked into now and how we can improve that. And, and how can we get younger athletes uh, to be engaged in something like that, the SNC and lifting weights or doing things. And I'm not saying it has to be lifting weight, but it could be an introduction, obviously 
in order to lead up to that. Um, so I think if the earlier that they are in, you know, given this opportunity, I think there'd be more acceptance and realization that this is okay. And I think, but it doesn't happen until you're later on, I think, until you're top athlete or you are at a club that supports and gives you that programming. Hmm. Yeah, no, that is, um, that is true. And so I said, you've just got to get it in there younger. You're going to have a drop off, people are going to lose interest, but if you can get those basic patterns introduced at a young age, um, the younger, the better, really. It just becomes part of the sport. Um, okay, so I think we can underline that as a sort of the second part of this interview. Uh, so we've had playing, now we've had coaching. Uh, the final section is something which actually I thought was really interesting. It's probably what drew me to you as a, as a, as a guest, amongst other things. And it was your involvement in something called Hockey for Heroes, which I understand is a registered charity and it raises money for help for heroes. Uh, obviously through sport and in this case through hockey so just explain to me a little bit more about what they do and and why so hockey for heroes um is a company that helps support health for heroes it started off with um a couple of um military ex-military uh guys um who suffered from PTSD, which is obviously what Help for Heroes is known for. Um, Ex-servicemen through their injuries or PTSD and decided that with their love of hockey, uh, they wanted to support charity. So it is generally, it's a, it's a we play hockey uh, really um, to raise funds for Help for Heroes and also other charities now which has only been very recent. Um, so it, it's, it's a group of people who've come together from all over the country who have gone through a process, a trial a period, um, and we support clubs, local clubs all over the country with uh, holding events um, and exhibition matches and stuff like that. So, or even helping clubs to maintain their clubs, keeping open. You know, most recently, Hockey for Heroes just helped Ashford Hockey Club um, pretty much keep their club alive by giving the uh, support them financially through a new hockey pitch. So it's those little things that not as well as just as well as the charity fundraising stuff for Help for Heroes, but also helping the local communities to keep uh, their clubs going. Um, you know, within that, we do um, one of the biggest events every couple of years, which is the Men's and Ladies Hockey Tour, um, which uh, is a very physically and mentally demanding challenge where we, this is our biggest fundraising event uh, in, the, in the charity. And um, alongside that, we do other tours. Most recently, um, a friend of mine went to Nepal uh, where they uh, played the highest game of hockey at 5,019 feet um, for Guinness World Record Records. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of different things that just happens as, as, as well as playing hockey, we do things to the extreme level. Yeah, that's, um, 
I mean, that, that was the one I saw when I when I looked up Help for Heroes and found out more about it. It was this event in the pool, which really stood out. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking of logistics. Obviously, I have to carry all, all the kit up. I assume at 5,000, so I'm much at the top of a some some sort of mountain. I'm assuming. Yeah. So, um, so this this event, a recent one in Nepal, where we. Uh, we linked up with a, a local school, a Lincoln uh, Minster School. Uh, we kind of, which uh, to raise money, obviously, uh, for Hockey for Heroes, they came along, were part of a group that um, the local people helped us um, obviously guide up towards the mountain. But yeah, we had to carry everything uh, on our backs. Um, all our sleeping gear, tents, hockey sticks, hockey falls, obviously, and stuff like that. So when we got there, um, it was all doable. Um, yeah, I did actually yeah. make a note of this for any uh, geography fans listening. <laughs> uh, this is on the website. <laughs> you had to ascend to the highest point of the Annapurna Pass, I believe. Yeah. Uh, which is where you found yourself so nearly five kilometres in the air. Um, uh, yeah. Play that game. So you had to play a 60-minute game in order, obviously, to, to count. Um, and within this, uh, Hockey for Heroes raised a total of £9,000. Um, and a alongside that, a very big name, Andy Halliday, who was a big part of Hockey for Heroes as well, but GB uh, men's manager, he also was raising money uh, through for a young lad called Lewis Will who has self palsy and he his challenge as well as playing was to dribble the ball all the way up the mountain at 9,000 wow. feet so yeah so he, he uh, raised, also raised some money a whopping three three thousand eight hundred pounds so yeah um he did that on the last tour as well the men's so he he's just a phenomenal person and so yeah, to do that. So why did you personally get involved? And I suppose how, have you got any involvement with the armed forces? Um, I personally haven't, um, but I've, I've known friends and uh, who have, but more closely uh, my uncle who was actually served in World War II as a medic. So, which at that time wasn't, um, yeah, it was a voluntary uh, um, thing that he had to do. And, you know, hearing his stories and experiences and what he went through just kind of opened my eyes to, you know, be more involved in the military aspects and also the recovery of what, you know, and seeing how it's impacted people serving. Um, and, I, and I really wanted to... I've always wanted to support a charity doing something I love, and uh, and Hockey for Heroes came came into it, and I'd been looking at it and heard about it all on social media through some friends within the hockey world, and decided to try it out. So, which is which in itself was a challenge itself. Um, so, uh, the trials generally happen every cycle of our tour. So after our first tour, men's tour, there is a uh, trials in December or January. And 
that is a way for the squad, for the management uh, team to look at individual players that have applied and see whether they have the qualities that would make a Hockey for Heroes player. And a lot of people sometimes get a bit put off by it because, you know, the trials incorporate a lot of physical demanding challenges, but we try and um, relate ourselves to kind of that physical demand of what the military go through. So we put ourselves in through that stress of what they would do when they're training. But it's not all about that. It's about, you know, the team bonding stuff, exercises to do team building. It's about the how you connect with one another, you know, who supports themselves, who's the one that's at the back and is willing to go back and get someone else if they're last or who's at the front and leading, but doesn't just finish there. He goes back and, and does that thing. So after that, you do play also some hockey, which is quite important as well. Of course. Yeah. Um, but it, it's probably an experience I've never seen elsewhere when I went to trials and got involved for heroes. It's just a, it's an, it, Unless you've been there and done it, it's it's just it's hard to explain. But the community in there and the cohesion within the team is is unbelievable. Um, once you get through it, so it's a very proud moment. Firstly, getting selected and being approved after that. But even if you don't get in, you always still um, you're always still involved still, and you can the communication not cut off or anything. Um, it's just unfortunately there's only certain amount of numbers that you can have. But it's just, you know, you go through the training, you go through your processes. Uh, but most importantly, it's, you know, when you do the trials, it's your why. Mm -hmm. So this is a phrase where um, founder of Hockey for Heroes, Joel Forrester, always asks every member of the squad who applies or, you know, during it. Um, my why was my uncle who served um, and I wanted to remember his legacy and what he did, he was about and what he did. And I also wanted to do it as a personal development once through my playing career and wanted to give something back to uh, other players or other clubs and their community and help for heroes and those people that have put their lives at risk. Um, and obviously, just just the experiences, the memories that you create are always life changing. So yeah. So how how do you juggle um, hockey for heroes with your playing career? It, do you, does your um, does your club take preference in terms of availability and games? And did 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 the tours ever align with your game weeks? So luckily tours um, happened during the uh, off season. So that was, and I think that's, they do take in consideration that a lot of, you know, applicants or team members do play hockey every weekend. Um, so they didn't obviously want to clash within that. So our meets are try tends to be in and around the hockey season. So not trying to clash on a, on a, on a game day so it would be a weekend but on a Sunday 
or would be during a holiday period where there's a break. So it, it lines up pretty well, actually. Um, so, yeah. Okay, well, that's, um, that's great to hear. And if someone wanted to learn more, more about Hockey Heroes or get involved, is it best just to go through the website? Yeah, so on the website, there's a link and how you apply. Um, and obviously we got uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Hockey for Heroes Hub that gives out lots of information about what's happening, what events and things like that. So, yeah. Okay, so I think that brings to the end that third section. So just a few little bits and bobs to finish. Um, so I always like to get some specific advice for myself. Uh, with regards, and in your case, probably in particular strength and conditioning and your involvement in coaching on that side. Is there anything you'd like to, uh, you'd like to give me? Um, I think, you know, as long as you're keeping on top of, you know, your injury and you're aware of it, where you, you keep, make sure you're strengthening other components, key muscle groups and around that. Um, I think that's really important, but also don't not to be scared that if one week it feels fine and the second week it's it's not. I think just give, you know, don't panic. You know, your body's gone through so much, so much stress one week and the next week just catches up with you. It's just about maintaining, keeping positive and trying to do the simple stuff that you're trying to do. Uh, I think that's that's important. Um, but I also a lot of injuries and rehab you do something and then you stop it which I found a lot uh, happens you're like well I'm being fixed I'm on the pitch I'm playing and you kind of forget about what you've just done and that's why you tend to have so many people that are stronger than they were before because it worked not only where you know one muscle group or was only where it's hurting but they worked out throughout the whole body you know so with my knee it wasn't just my quads and I had to work on my hamstring I had to work on my ankle stability I had to work on my calves and all that how they were interlinked so when you forget about you know your injury or previous injuries there's also going to be there's always still going to be a niggle there because you've essentially damaged uh something and it's repaired in a certain way but never the same and i think that's what i found out with my knee is that okay there's going to be days i feel great and there's going to be days i'm not and i was warned about that but as long as i keep on top of it and it's fine and it aches then it aches that's that's it's just natural um but just not to worry really yeah i know i mean that, that that's so that is so classic. You do the rehab exercises, you get back yeah. to the point where you were as strong as you were before. But why not get why not get stronger? Why have your knee as strong as it was before you tore it? Why not have it stronger so you're less likely to tear it again? That is um and that, yeah. is, that is really important. That's something which I personally always always forget actually. Just keep keep doing the rehab after the the period of recovery. Just keep getting stronger, keep making yeah. the joints stronger. Okay, and then, so just, just to finish really then, um, there's always opportunity for any other business. Um, is there anything you'd like to discuss? Um, I think as a, as a coach myself and 
with the topic that we talked about, S&C, and especially in hockey uh, and the development stage, I've always thought, actually, you know, can, can England hockey with the qualifications or any other qualifications have more involvement or part of their um, qualif- qualifications to have an element of SNC in, in the actual practice? Um, so, you know, people are aware and incorporate this in their sessions other than just the, the basic stuff or the or the key stuff which is the skills you know I think there should be something in there that is introduces um, strength and conditioning or that preparation phase or that injury prevention and how how that looks within their training well well yeah so, I mean, that, that can be applied be fair to think most sports um and and the p system in general in this country it's very interesting actually when you look at elite sport and in particular professional sport and these big clubs in various sport in football rugby athletics um there's so much emphasis now placed on strength and conditioning and physiotherapy and medical care and you look at this just take a you know man united for example so much money and jobs are used on strength and conditioning and analysis and and so on but then when you look at the amateur game and those young players who might eventually grow up to be involved in the club at man united they're given next to no strength and conditioning coaching at a young age um and so it surely makes a lot more sense to filter that strength and conditioning and recovery knowledge down to the to that real grassroots level, uh, whether that be through education and the P system, or whether that be through the clubs themselves. And like you said, you could you could incorporate strength and conditioning into your FA coaching badges or your rugby coaching or your hockey coaching qualifications. So then it is taught at a very young age and it just becomes part of the the process rather than getting to 15, 16 and then suddenly having that thrown on you. And it could be so much more effective if people are more mobile and stronger and more flexible at a younger age. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And also at a younger age, your body is developing and changing all the time. So that consistency of that, you know, uh, training or the SNC and, you know, keep on top of those movements is really key. And uh, a lot of injuries you see occur in young athletes is when they've had a growth spurt. Uh, so when you have a growth spurt, your body essentially realigns, it re- stretches your ligaments, your muscles. So it kind of that muscle memory of them doing the repetitive movements is kind of gone. So they have to then learn again how to do it. So you tend to see someone who's like really athletic, so shorter, and then suddenly has a, a gross but their hand-eye coordination and their balance is gone didn't that you know within a few months because the body has grown and has changed so you know it's but that's again it's education of when that's happening and how to maintain it or look after that um so yeah, and we, we spoke, spoke a few weeks ago with uh, Simone, uh, world champion in calisthenics, about 
the importance of developing that general calisthenic awareness and general mm. strength for a young age, as opposed to giving a child who's four a tennis racket. Um, it's I think it's probably more important that at a young age you just start to develop those movement patterns and you if you can understand how your body works, um, it's crazy how many people get to 18 and have very little knowledge about how to train or why they do certain things or if you understood that it would have so many more benefits when it comes to managing all sorts obesity and diabetes and injuries and like so many problems in health in healthcare it's much better if it's, you had a general knowledge of why you do things not what you do why at a younger age but again that's a whole other can of worms um but now, I do get your point, though, about integrating that into teaching qualifications and coaching qualifications. So it's just part of the syllabus. It's part of the, the growing phase in any sport. I think that's really, really important. Yeah, um, yeah and I've, I've been fortunate to be in an environment where we've, I've worked alongside schools and clubs that have had that uh, SNC. So I've learned a lot, and hence why the goalie guide has been gone, like a bit of a trigger. Going, you know what? actually let's education educate these kids and why we do it and how why it's so important you know, you know goalkeepers are isolated uh, as it is <laughs> so we isolate them even more by going actually your movements and your stresses that you put yourself through is so different than an outfield player so why are you training the same way as an outfield player it's it's going right why you need to train differently than a midfielder and a forward or a defender you are classified itself as very very different completely you know so if they understand why they're doing it and how they can prevent you know themselves being injured then you know why should that not happen happen earlier on in their development yeah no of course i mean that's a really nice message to end on um and all i can do is just thank you very much for your time it's been great to speak to you and all the best of luck for the rest of the season. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. It's been great speaking to you too. Aurora is player, coach and charity fundraiser. Aurora is one of the guests I'm perhaps most looking forward to touching bases with in five or ten years' time. At the moment, everything is suspended in equilibrium, with her playing career probably taking slight priority. As her playing ability fades in the future, it will be interesting to see where her focus shifts. Will it be towards goalkeeping coaching, perhaps club coaching or international coaching, maybe SNC away from hockey or expeditions with Hockey for Heroes? If you have some spare time, why not check out the back catalogue, including the Christmas special for a taster of all of my previous guests? Why not go running with Joni Goss, cycling with Charlotte Fraser, or perhaps cuddle up under a blanket with Dom or Simone? Or both, if you're lucky. So please remember to like and subscribe, as all the feedback is greatly appreciated. And also check out the Instagram, so that's at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z or at Mansfield Curtis and all the follows and reviews I said are really greatly appreciated and really make this whole venture viable. And you can also check out the Instagram for Aurora, which is at Aurora Mears for more information on her and her upcoming events.
this has been Curtis Mansfield saying keep positive and most importantly, stay safe.